You're listening to a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRRFM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with John Keane. John is a professor of politics at the University of Sydney, and he joined me in the studio to talk about the new despotism of the 21st century. You're listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRRFM with Amy Mullins, and I'm very pleased to have with me in the studio now... John Keane, who is a professor of politics at the University of Sydney, and he's also the author of a very well-known and quite hefty tome, The Life and Death of Democracy. Thanks, John, for joining me. Pleasure to be here, Amy. It's great to have you in Melbourne because you're going to be giving a lecture on a really interesting topic, the new global disorder and the rise of despotism. Now, I would like to explore this and start, I guess, with the context and the history of despotism, because as you have said in other contexts, despotism is quite an old term. It's really rather old fashioned, and it did die out uh, in the 19th century. And now um, you're bringing it back. So first, I I wanted to ask you about the first two phases or uses of despotism which you've uncovered and looked at and then we'll move into despotism in the 21st century and what that really means. Sure, let's do it. Uh, I am engaged in some pearl diving. You know, I want to retrieve a term that, as you say, went out of fashion sometime during the 19th century, um, a term that has a very old history going back to at least the Greeks, where the despot, the despotis, was the male head of household uh, who um, looked after, nurtured, protected women, children, and slaves. That was the despot. Later, the term was revived in late medieval, early modern Europe, to refer to a type of regime, uh, top-down power, that prevails in the East. So Europeans who use this term uh, use it in a very Orientalist way. So despotism is what happens out there in the East in what is today India and in China. And the idea is that those despotisms uh, tend to be violent They produce fear among their subjects, and they are forms of organized bullying. This is not what I mean. Then in, as you mentioned, in the middle of the 18th century, something remarkable happens. I'm sorry for this potted history of the term, (laughs) but it's important to understand. In the middle of the 18th century, beginning with a figure named Montesquieu, The language of despotism becomes revolutionary. It refers, and it flourished during the American Revolution and during the French Revolution, it refers to a type of top-down power uh, that is not just an Eastern problem but is also a Western problem. And what's scary for those who use it is that despotism, uh, those who rule despotisms, practice the art of cultivating loyalty of their subjects. Despotisms are systems of voluntary servitude. And the great fear um, of those who spoke about despotism is that this would take root 
in, for example, European monarchies uh, and uh, the monarchy of King George III um, and had to be thrown off. And that language of despotism, uh, as I say, was central to understanding and the dynamics of the American Revolution. The term then uh, kind of disappeared. It became obsolete. I want to revive it for reasons that I hope we can talk about. Exactly. And that other phase that you're just talking about there, it was used, as you say, as a weapon against arbitrary power. And we see this now, um, this use of arbitrary power in the 21st century uh, version of despotism that you're talking about. But I'd just like to draw out one final distinction before we move ahead, and that will hopefully lead us in there, is that Montesquieu, who you mentioned, he wrote L'Esprit des Lois. (laughs) Spirit of the Laws. Spirit of the Laws. And he basically was saying that these despotisms were reckless and then were really causing their own downfall. They dig their own graves. Definitely. So now you're saying in this 21st century despotism, my understanding is they're much smarter and better able to adapt and reform themselves to maintain and survive. Could we now move into despotism and your conception of it, utilising it? And why are we talking about despotism instead of some of these other really broad brushstroke terms such as authoritarianism or totalitarianism Mm -hmm. or fascism? There are quite a few questions in that question, so let me just briefly unpack them. Montesquieu, yes, thought that um, despotisms would dig their own grave. Um, Later thinkers, political writers, were less sure of that because of uh, the way that despotisms nurture uh, support from below. Uh, paradoxically, you know, that top-down power could win the loyalty of uh, its subjects. And But the Montesquieu point still applies to uh, some of these despotisms that we're talking about. Um, In the Central Asian republics, the one example that leaps out of the record is Nyatsov, who got elected initially with 98% of a vote when the Soviet Union collapsed in Tajikistan. He then went on to declare himself the great leader. He rewrote the, the Quran in local language, uh, languages. He, uh, he ordered his cabinet to take five-mile walks. Um, he banned all dogs in the capital city on the grounds that they're putrid. He banned car radios because he was sure, he alleged, that people were having b- bad-mouthing him using uh, radio music to, to camouflage uh, their complaints. And when the Met Office uh, got the weather forecast wrong, he sacked the whole lot of them. So there are these crazy moments uh, where things happen that um, are understandable in the terms of Montesquieu. But yes, uh, my idea is that these regimes of the 21st century, Russia, China, Central Asian republics, the Gulf states like Saudi, Belarus, Hungary, possibly Poland, possibly Turkey now on the path, are regimes where those who rule uh, try to reduce the recklessness. They try to learn how better to govern and to do so by uh, winning the loyalty of their subjects. And in this sense, I think these regimes are not uh, understandable as kleptocracies, you know, regimes where a small 
group steals wealth and power from the population. They are not Senator John McCain, former presidential republic, uh, Republican candidate, uh, famously described Putin's Russia as a gas station masquerading as a state. I think um, that kind of language, a talk of them as autocracies, um, kleptocracies, and so on, is mistaken. It just doesn't come to terms with the way these regimes work and why it is that they're more durable than we uh, might imagine. Mm. On the word authoritarianism, that is the prevailing term. It's actually to used to describe these regimes. You know, China is an authoritarian regime. Putin's Russia is a system of authoritarianism. Actually, if you look at the origins of that word, it's Samuel Huntington, the American political scientist, uh, around 1970. What I don't like about the term is, first of all, that it uses the United States as the measure, liberal democracy, <laughs> with an American accent. It, it uses it as the measure of things. The things baseline. Are not, things are not going very well in the United States. Mm. You know, that democracy um, is riddled with dysfunctions. But the real problem I have with that term, um, and listeners might have not thought this through, is that that term authoritarianism contrasted authoritarian regimes with democracies. And the difference for Sam Huntington was that in democracies, uh, there are free and fair elections, and in authoritarian systems, there are none. Actually, one of the surprising things about all of these despotisms uh, with uh, one or two exceptions where women are not entitled to vote, as in Saudi, is that all of them practice elections and on a scale of integrity, they are quite high. Of course, there's a lot of rigging of results, but they, they hold elections, including in China, where more than a million elections have been held since the end of the 1980s. And this is one of the mechanisms that allow those to rule, claim credibly in their view that they are governing in the name of the people. One of the qualities of all of these despotisms is that everything that happens is done in the name of a sovereign people. Uh, the people are supposed uh, to be the source of power, the source of authority. Um, that's the way Xi Jinping speaks. That's the way Putin uh, speaks. That's the way all of the despots of the Central Asian republics speak. And so for those two reasons, I think the term authoritarianism is actually a misdescription of the much more complicated uh, dynamics uh, that, um, that have to be understood because they are increasingly a global force. And if you include China in the category of despotism, then what we're witnessing is the return of China to the global stage. We're uh, witnessing the spread of its power and its shaping of global institutions. And it's a fact and we shall have to come to terms with it, and therefore it's important that we understand how that system works internally. Mm. And you say that they're not defective democracies either, even though they have democratic elements or they have styles that, that approach democracy, they really aren't. And I want to draw out some of the key characteristics mm. that you see as making up this 21st century despotism 
And some of those that you've mentioned are around periodic elections that, yes. that make it appear as though there's a democracy. There are also other characteristics you describe that really seem to be ways that they induce the voluntary servitude of the the people, the sovereign people, to actually become the passive you know, subjects that you're describing. Can you talk about some of the key characteristics that you believe are most revealing and also contradictory? Sure. Um, these regimes are trying to reduce and to camouflage violence. They are not, in contrast to the totalitarianisms of the 1920s and 30s and the Soviet a form of Stalinism that persisted well into the 50s. They are not systems that induce fear into the hearts of the bulk of the population. Uh, the middle classes of these despotisms feel that actually life has improved, that their levels of dignity have risen. Putin, no doubt, has helped to spread that view uh, through significant parts of the population. And when violence happens, as it does in Russia... Sometimes it's crude, you know, um, nuclear contaminated materials put into a cup of tea to deal with a dissident. But most of the violence happens uh, at the local level and in camouflage form. And it's usually reported as the work of, quote unquote, thugs. There's also the point that, um, to repeat, you know, all of these regimes, uh, those who rule do so in the name of the people. What could be more democratic than that? Uh, that is, after all, isn't it, the idea of uh, the whole idea of democracy that people govern themselves? That's what these rulers say. Of course, it's a sort of phantom democracy. Um, they govern through opinion polls. Uh, there are around 800 opinion polling agencies in China. Quite a few of them are independent of the party, and the party develops policies at city level, for example, using these public opinion polling uh, mechanisms to gauge uh, public reactions to their proposed policies. In Guangzhou, there is the famous case of introducing parking restrictions in a city of you know, 35 million people. Um, the party does it by contracting an independent public opinion polling agency. And one last example, um, internet policy. I would say the, that Iran and China are at the cutting edge of the way that those who govern are uh, using the internet to control the internet. But it's not understandable, internet policy is not understandable as um, in terms of the old censorship model. Yes, there is deep uh, uh, mining of key words using software to eliminate words from WeChat and uh, Weibo and so on. And yes, um, there is a rounding up of internet dissidents and sometimes their disappearance or imprisonment. But internet policy in China, as in Russia, as in um, more than a few of these despotisms, is one where digital storms happen. Users of the internet bellyache and the regime learns from this. So the internet is used as a kind of early warning device. Uh, the internet is used to promote the opinions of uh, the those who rule. And even the employment of people, they're called 50 cent bloggers in China, uh, whose job is to deal with rumors and to combat 
contrary opinions that could have the potential to destabilize the regime. So, uh, you know, all of these techniques are remarkable examples of the, of, of the attempt by those who rule to rule more intelligently, to learn how better to rule, knowing that um, the old Mao maxim, you know, political power grows out of the barrel of gun, is not true. That you can only secure top-down power for a short term through martial law or through violence and terrorizing the population much better um, this is the point of many of these innovations. Much better is to rule by acknowledging that it is people's support for power that is the basis of durable government. These rulers understand that very well, and that would be, for example, one way of understanding this anti-corruption campaign that's going on uh, under Xi Jinping. It's a purge, and it's a purge, of course, of the enemies of, of Xi but it is also a strategy for dealing with the widespread feeling among the Chinese population that corruption has gone too far. And it helps to explain why it is that, according to the polls, maybe 80% of Chinese people feel that this is a good thing. And you will hear people say it's better if there's a cancer in the body politic, it's better to cut out you know, that particular cancer, then, then let the whole body politic uh, die. So despotisms of the 21st century are experiments in cultivating voluntary servitude of the population. Voluntary servitude. And it seems to be quite effective, is it not? Well, time will tell. Uh, and it's true that these regimes have built into them some structural problems mainly to do with lack of accountability, with the arbitrary power that riddles these systems. How dangerous the banking system, the banking and credit system of China is for the durability of the whole polity is, I think, an important question. We don't know exactly how this banking credit sector works, but if it were to collapse, then the whole regime uh, would be endangered. But my hunch, based on the fieldwork I'm doing, the research, the reading, and thinking through these regimes, which I'm calling despotisms, is that they seem to me to have a great deal of durability. And the shocking thing for us should be that they are now a serious alternative to power-sharing constitutional democracy of the kind that our parents and grandparents enjoyed. Yes. And you have said that this region and these despotisms are becoming the centre, if not already the geopolitical centre of the world. And now with the election of Donald Trump, we've seen America take a step back on many issues where they would normally act quite unilaterally or be the leader and, and really initiate action. Donald Trump at uh, these major summits such as the G20 seems to be quite passive in his body language, but also what he's doing on, on key areas, particularly not wanting to uh, sanction North Korea for their testing of intercontinental ballistic missiles. 
So my question is, now that we have China and Russia and other major regions as part of this Eurasia, you might call it, or, or some other terminology, now that we've seen that rise of, of this region and the backing down of the United States, where are we at? You say that this could become a successful model. Do you think this could become a successful model in America? When I first started uh, uh, some years ago to uh, put my thoughts together about um, these regimes, you know, draw them together and, and ask what they have in common, we've discussed some of those common features. I thought that I was uh, mainly dealing with, yeah, the rise of a serious competitor uh, to uh, power sharing, I call them monetary democracies. Um, a lot has changed in the last 24 months. And what is happening in the United States, uh, what has happened in Greece, uh, what is happening in Brexit Britain, uh, what is going on in little Hungary and much bigger Poland, seemed to me all of that is understandable in terms of the possible growth and the spread of despotic power in the sense that I'm describing it. I mean, let's for a moment harbor the spooky thought that Donald Trump, who's now preparing for re-election, gets elected, elected for a second term. This uh, is a type of politics that appeals to the people. It's clearly a protection of the very wealthy. He promised to drain the swamp, but you know, the cabinet around him is the highest concentration of millionaires and billionaires ever in the history of presidential government. And let's imagine that he manages to dismantle or seriously to weaken the judiciary, the FBI, um, the federal scrutiny bodies that um, are designed to restrain the power of arbitrary power inside the federal government. Let's imagine that he succeeds in wearing down journalists, uh, that fake news lot. And let's imagine that he manages to widen the support base. It's currently around a third of the population likes him and thinks he's doing a great job. Let's imagine that he expands that what kind of United States would begin to crystallize? Well, I think, and it's uh, for me a very surprising and disturbing element, that I think that you could, dis you could understand this in terms of the problem of despotism. Uh, that, and it helps explain you know, his fascination with Putin and the fact that you know, despotisms interfere increasingly with actually existing democracies, as they, it seems, clearly did in the presidential election campaign. Let's imagine that that American dynamic unfolds. Then the United States that is written about in textbooks called a liberal democracy would not anymore be describable in those terms. And I think it's more, much more than a problem of authoritarianism. I think it's I think it's despotic because one of the things that's happening, and he's a, a master at this, is, is nurturing through a whole variety of techniques, gaslighting people, sowing the seeds of confusion, speaking about making America great again. I mean, all of this is a politics of nurturing 
a kind of loyalty in the population that is willing to serve uh, him, and that is what I'm calling voluntary servitude, and that we should be uh, watching for. We should be disturbed by it. If you're interested in, if you have in your heart some feelings for power sharing and respect for complexity and, and humility, and if you take seriously the dangers of arbitrary power, the Greeks worried about hubris. You know, the problem with arbitrary power, the problem with too much power, is that it leads people in any setting, very often men, to um, do foolish things, to take stupid decisions, and in the worst case, become blinded by their own power. This is hubris, and it's a word that, um, you know, bedevils these despotisms too. But you can imagine an American democracy that is corrupted by this trend, where we will look back on things like his attacks on independent institutions, Trump, or things like, yeah, why wouldn't my daughter sit in my seat at the G20 meeting, um, where we look back on the dynasty quality of the Trump administration, and we will see in retrospect that you know, these years, 2016, 17, 18, put the United States on the road to a new form of despotism that, by the way, uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, the great French aristocrat who came to America in um, around 1830 and wrote one of the classic books in the field of democracy, a two-volume democracy in America, his great fear is that the United States, that the democracy of the United States would, would unravel, that it would, that it would drift into a new kind of despotism where large numbers of Americans simply didn't care anymore about being active citizens. They just let them govern. Uh, well, that's quite possibly on the political agenda, I think. In the United States, but not only in the United States. Yes, and that they were more distracted or occupied by material consumption, I think was one of his other... Yes, elements. and one of the features of these despotisms is that they cultivate a shopping mall mentality. Mm. You know, Saudi women go shopping in, uh, in Beirut, where they take off their chador and they drink and they dance and... All of these despotisms have cultivated a kind of culture of consumption uh, whose logic is, you know, let us govern, let us rule. You pay attention to your daily lives, to your children, lovers, families, and your work. Don't complain. If you do complain, just complain in private. You can do all the bellyaching you like but let us get on and rule. So that privatization of people's lives, uh, the sense that you know people should not be actively interested in public affairs, that's something Tocqueville feared, mm. and it's something that is a structural feature. It's a characteristic of all of these despotisms. Mm. And just finally, picking up that Trump um, prediction or <laughs> estimated guess at the moment – 
when we look at the Republicans who are propping him up, well, they clearly dominate um, the House that could impeach him if they wanted. And that's why many commentators are saying Trump will never be impeached. Do you think this is also some form of voluntary servitude or hubris in the Republican Party and those who are elected Republicans? Well, uh, yes, uh, is the short answer. I think um, their motives, the Republican uh, uh, congressmen and women, um, have mixed motives. Um, some of them fear the loss of their seats if they were to stand up to him. Um, all of them must lie in bed at night awake wondering about the dangers of the collapse of the Republican machine, though he's not a straightforward Republican. Some of them actively cheer him, but I would say there's been too little discussion about another reason why they, for the moment, won't initiate impeachment proceedings. And it is to do with the fact of the chaos, the, the gaslighting um, quality of Trump. Unpredictability, saying wild things, those tweets that everybody, you know, follows um, as if, you know, journalists just hang on his every word. All of that is very functional for camouflaging the things that are going on under the radar screen, underreported, that are pretty serious. We now know that uh, in the offices of budget scrutiny and supervision of federal departments, Trump has frozen the appointment of directors of those departments. Um, around half of them are becoming dysfunctional. He wants that. He wants to actually weaken the push and pull that federal departments um, have, their, their role in active policymaking. Or another example, Foggy Bottom, as it's called, the State Department's headquarters, we're learning that Tillerson, Secretary of State, um, is actually not meeting with departmental heads. He is not engaging with the very staff whose job is to uh, uh, generate and fine-tune the foreign policy of an empire. I mean, this all is happening, and it's happening because there's this you know, this hubbub, it's this hullabaloo, it's this razzmatazz that surrounds the presidency that is actually very functional for this, you know, this dismantling of structures and this transformation of American democracy. So that's worrying. Mm, it's very disturbing. Thank you, John, for bringing Pleasure, in Amy. so many poignant points and to actually open up our minds as to a new way of looking at these regimes and also American politics. I hope you have a great trip and lecture tonight. Thank you very much. No nightmares among those who were listening, please. <laughs> You've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a show broadcast on 3RRFM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and noon. Thanks for joining me.